A major winter storm is disrupting holiday travel across the country. Thousands of flights have been delayed or canceled. It's Friday, December 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour here in Massachusetts, a storm is bringing heavy winds and rain. Officials are advising drivers to be careful. Localized flooding, reduced visibility, hydroplaning concerns out there, so take it slow. Also this hour, the January 6th committee releases its final report nearly two years after the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And retiring Massachusetts Health and Human Services Secretary Mary Lou Sutters looks back at her eight years on the job, marked by the last few years of dealing with COVID. It took me probably a month to realize that states were really on their own. In sports, it was a win at home for the Bruins. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House is expected to vote on a government spending bill today. After weeks of intense negotiations, the $1.7 trillion measure cleared the Senate on Thursday. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the bill is one of the most significant appropriations packages in years. We funded lots of our promises, such as the CHIPS bill and bill to help the veterans who were hurt, uh, the PACT Act who were hurt by the burn pits. Summer lunches for kids now every summer. Increase in Pell Grants. So we've concluded this Congress, one of the most productive in decades, with one of the best omnibus packages in decades. The government spending bill also includes more than $850 billion in defense spending and billions of dollars in emergency assistance for Ukraine. Once the legislation passes the House, it then heads to President Biden for his signature. A powerful winter storm is bearing down on a large section of the nation ahead of the holiday weekend. Pablo Arez-Pena with member station KERA reports homeless shelters are open as temperatures drop below zero across much of Texas. Hundreds of people are lining up at shelters throughout Dallas as dangerously cold temperatures grip much of the region. Pastor Wayne Walker leads Our Calling, which provides services for the city's unhoused population. We've got individuals that are elderly, that are disabled. Uh, we've got individuals that are fleeing you know, domestic violence. Every day we work with victims of trafficking. And you know, those challenges get so much worse in days like this where it's cold. Walker says the nonprofit is already opening up another location to provide additional shelter for the city's most vulnerable residents. I'm Pablo Arauz Peña in Dallas. North Korea has test-fired two ballistic missiles, its second missile launch in under a week. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports this follows the launch on Sunday of what North Korea claims was a spy satellite. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff says that the short-range ballistic missiles were fired from the Sunan district of the capital Pyongyang. The missiles flew eastward into the sea. The launch follows joint military drills by the U.S. and South Korea this week involving B-52H nuclear-capable bombers and F-22 fighter jets. North Korea has conducted an unprecedented 67 missile test this year, from hypersonic missiles to submarine-launched ballistic missiles. This week, Pyongyang warned that it could fire an intercontinental ballistic missile at full range, possibly over the Pacific Ocean, instead of being fired upwards at a steep angle. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Wanju, South Korea. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Today's storms are knocking out power for thousands of people in Massachusetts. So far, utilities, National Grid, and Eversource say outages are concentrated mostly on the North Shore. About 15,000 people in Essex County are without power. Strong wind gusts throughout the day will likely result in more outages. According to utility officials, the National Weather Service has posted high wind and coastal flood warnings. Meantime, ferry service to Nantucket is canceled today because of the weather. Ferries to Martha's Vineyard will not run until at least 10 a.m., and ferry officials say there could be more cancellations. In Greater Boston, the T is suspending service on its Hingham Hall, Charlestown, and East Boston ferries for the entire day today. Flights, of course, also affected. Right now, the flight tracking website FlightAware shows more than 200 total cancellations at Logan Airport. Cape Air, JetBlue, and American Airlines make up most of those cancellations. One of Boston's largest holiday gatherings still won't be happening this year because of the pandemic, but that doesn't mean December has been quiet for Christmas in the city, the local charity that hosts the event. WBUR's Max Larkin reports. Shortly after the pandemic struck in 2020, Christmas in the City lost its co-founder, Jake Kennedy, to ALS, says volunteer leader Max Julian. Everything happened kind of quickly and at the same time. So we decided, okay, what do we do, what do we do? Since that Christmas, the charity has taken the celebration to dozens of area shelters, bringing gifts and meals. This year, volunteers also set up a storefront downtown to give away donated toys to qualifying families. So far, I got some socks, I got Barbie, I got some games. This is awesome. There is a chance the big party could resume in time for Christmas 2023. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts residents will be able to place in-person bets on sports at casinos starting next month. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission set a soft launch date for January 30th, and that'll be open at first to a small group of people. The commissioners didn't vote on exact dates, so the timing could change. They say the launch will depend on whether the kiosks used to place the bets can be inspected in time. The time is six minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. In sports, Bruins celebrating a victory at the Garden last night. They outscored the Winnipeg Jets 3-2. to They play the Devils in New Jersey today. The Celtics will try to break a three-game losing streak tonight. They face off against the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden. Patriots have a Saturday game tomorrow. They play the Bengals at, Bengals at home. In our weather forecast, rainy, windy today. Gusts as high as 50 miles an hour today. And a coastal flood warning is posted. Temperatures today day up near 60 degrees. Tonight, the rain tapers off. Still windy, though. Temperatures going down into the teens tonight. For Christmas Eve tomorrow, mostly sunny, breezy, highs in the low 20s. And Christmas Day, sunshine, temperatures in the upper 20s. It is 51 degrees in Boston.
WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. The House Select January 6th committee has released its final report. It comes after an 18-month investigation into the events which culminated in the insurrection at the Capitol in 2021. In more than 800 pages, the report details what led the panel to vote to issue four criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump, among other recommendations. And it lays out a path forward for the panel's findings. Here's Chairman Benny Thompson. We have every confidence that the work of this committee will help provide a roadmap to justice and that the agencies and institutions responsible for ensuring justice under the law will use the information we've provided to aid in their work. To walk us through all of this is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hi, Claudia. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. So what are some of the report's major findings? It focuses largely on former President Trump's premeditated role in the January 6th attack and goes further into his criminal referrals from the committee. The report is eight chapters long, covering false claims of a stolen election, the fake elector scheme, and, quote, 187 minutes of dereliction, referencing Trump's inaction during the siege. One chapter is titled after a federal judge's description of Trump's post-2020 election efforts, calling it a, quote, coup in search of a legal theory and captures desperate attempts to overturn the presidential results, such as trying to force then-Vice President Mike Pence to illegally reverse President Biden's win in a ceremonial counting of the votes. Finally, it details ties between extremist groups and Trump allies. So how does the report delve into law enforcement and intelligence failures? It reiterates other findings, that there were significant failures here. For example, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, said before January 6th, the probability for violence was clear and he expected, quote, street fights when the sun went down. What role does the American public play when it comes to these findings? The panel says while the danger to the Capitol by an armed and angry crowd was foreseeable, the fact that a president would be the catalyst was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. The report says, quote, if we lack the imagination that a president would incite an attack on his own government, it goes on to say we lack that insight no more. And it says the best defense against that danger in the future will not come from law enforcement, but rather an informed and active citizenry. Okay, so what recommendations does the report lay out? The first is reforms to the Electoral Count Act. This would solidify Vice President's role as ceremonial. And this is part of a major spending bill that could head to President Biden's desk today. It also says it's now up to the Justice Department and courts to take the lead on criminal referrals and that respective legal bar associations should evaluate the conduct of attorneys named in the report who should not, quote, undermine the constitutional and statutory process for peacefully transferring power in our government. This includes attorney John Eastman, who was tied to the plot to overturn the result, Kenneth Chesbro, a central figure in the fake elector scheme, and other Trump-aligned attorneys such as Rudy Giuliani. Okay, so Claudia, now that this investigation is done, the report is out, what are the next steps? There are still more records to come and plenty. Mm -hmm. For example, a few dozen witness transcripts have been shared so far by the panel, but hundreds more are expected in the coming days as the panel will sunset December 31st. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you so much. Thank you much. 
The U.S. just pledged nearly $2 billion in new military aid to Ukraine. The package includes a sophisticated Patriot missile battery. During this week's surprise visit to Washington and in a news conference with President Biden, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky joked through an interpreter that one might not be enough. What's going to happen after Patriots are installed? After that, we will send another signal to President Biden that we would like to get more Patriots. The Kremlin called the new shipment a provocative step and warned of unpredictable consequences. And some in the U.S. have expressed skepticism about both the cost and the effectiveness. Among them, retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. He's with us this morning. Good morning, Major. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, So Ukraine has been pleading for this kind of defense system in the face of Russia's Air Force power, its missile attacks. Why are you worried about providing this to them? Well, a couple things. First of all, I don't think it's enough in that uh, the Patriot missile system would only protect, let's say, one-fifth of the landmass of Ukraine. The size of Ukraine is very large. And this will create a false sense of security for them in some ways. They'll have to decide to put it only in a certain location, likely in Kyiv, where it will protect just um, the capital, versus critical infrastructure where the Russians are going to target most of their cruise missiles now, I think, going forward with this system in place. It's the most sophisticated one in the world. So if we're going to give them this system, we have to give them enough where they can at least protect their own country with. So is the answer to give them more? Likely, likely Patriot missiles, which are defensive in nature. Now, there is still risk here. The risk is that uh, these uh, Patriot missiles will acquire a Russian target of an airplane, let's say, a fighter, a fighter plane, and they chase. And what that means is they'll, they could potentially cross over the border between Ukraine and Russia and acquire a target in Russian territory. I think that's what, what America is concerned about. The administration thinks that if, uh, if U.S. military power is used to acquire Russian targets across over Russia, I think that's a level of escalation that they're really uncomfortable with. And what could happen if a missile were to chase into Russian airspace like that? And if it acquires that target, you now have potentially, you know, American military hardware using against Russian military hardware uh, over Russia. Russia could say that's an act of war and they could likely escalate, perhaps launch a missile against uh, known U.S. forces that are in Poland or other NATO countries that are there. So it could lead to an escalation. I think that's what the administration is concerned about. Now, in your view, though, do you think that the Patriot system should just not be given to Ukraine at all or... What's the answer here? No, I think I think the system is appropriate. It's still fundamentally defensive in nature, and, and okay. that's the issue here. All of the systems that we've provided to them are defensive. Um, they're, they're not necessarily going to help Ukraine win, uh, on the ground in particular. Um, they need tanks. They need uh, F-16s. They need other offensive platforms, long-range missile systems, uh, another example. So I do think that the, the system is defensive in nature, that it can be programmed to ensure that it doesn't fly over uh, U- uh, Russian airspace, uh, but but we just haven't given them enough. We've given them a false sense of security with it. This Patriot system, it's complicated. It needs a lot of training, typically six months. It's being six months. It's being sped up in this case to just two months. I mean, is it also too late that it's being it, sent? No, it might be. Uh, we're likely training their soldiers now uh, in third world countries. Uh, reports are showing. 
um, and using training simulations. But it is complex. It has a fire direction system which comp which uh, calculates the firing solutions, well advanced radar which can pick up multiple targets at one time. So it is complex. It's not a video game. I think that is the other concern that if we were going to do this again from a strategic perspective, we should have done it months ago and had it in place for the winter time. Are you concerned at all that, you know, as Russia has said, they've described it as an escalatory step, even though the administration and you have described this as a defensive system? Are you worried that just providing the Patriot system could escalate Russia's war? It, it can, but I, as what's happening now on the ground is the Ukraine military is literally destroying Russia's conventional forces and something we just didn't expect 300 days into the war at this point. So it gets back to what's Russia's response going to be. It, it's, it'll have to be strategic and it'll have to really start, it, it'll tripwire something that they probably can't imagine or can't control. So if they had a way that they could respond tactically, perhaps that would be the case. I just don't think that, that they have that. So I'm not necessarily worried about this escalating it from their perspective, just as a, from air defense systems. There are other things we could do clearly that though that they would think would be escalatory. You mentioned just in the few seconds we have left that, left that you, the Ukrainian forces have done well in the face of Russia's military. And the Patriot system might provide a false sense of security. What kind of aid should the U.S. be delivering in this moment? Well, I think I think the United States has got to look at what we can do to help uh, them take the Black Sea forces out in Crimea, uh, offensive weapons on the ground, perhaps uh, missile systems that will allow them to go on the offensive. That That's going to be the difference. I think we're waiting to see winter and see how winter goes for them. Retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Thanks so much for your time. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Some of the country's coldest temperatures this week have been in Montana. We're talking close to 50 degrees below zero with biting winds that made it feel even colder. It's a dangerous place to be homeless, as Austin Amistoy with Montana Public Radio reports. One of the state's biggest homeless shelters is the Pavarello Center in Missoula, where Jill Bonney is in charge. It seems strange to say I hope that we are at capacity, but if that's how many people need shelter, then I yes, I hope we're at capacity. Bonnie says 28 people died while homeless in Missoula this year. That's a few more than in previous years. They're proud that none of the deaths were cold-related. The annual ceremony memorializing deaths of people without housing in the capital city, Helena, is usually held outdoors. This year, it was moved inside the state capital rotunda as the temperature plunged to 29 degrees below zero. Helena's symphony orchestra played a Jewish musical meditation for mourning. Jennifer Gursky with YWCA Helena led the ceremony. Tonight, as we gather in our people's house, there are some of our neighbors struggling to simply keep their fingers and toes warm struggling to know where their next gallon of gas is coming from and wondering if they fall asleep under their blankets, if they will wake up. Organizations in many Montana cities and towns have opened special shelters or warming centers this week to try to save people's lives. Some are offering hotel vouchers and discouraging people from sleeping in their cars. The organization that runs Bozeman's largest warming shelter is scrambling to stay open 24 hours a day during this cold snap. You know, we are doing what it takes right now to shift funding to be able to do this. But as we all know, our winters here are long. For NPR News, I'm Austin Amistoy in Missoula, Montana.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, prenatal testing for cancer. It's 20 minutes past 7. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body? Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain. Actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, rainy today, very windy, strong gusts as high as 50 miles an hour today, and a coastal flood warning is in effect through this afternoon. Temperatures today up around 60 degrees. Tonight, the rain tapers off. It will remain windy. Temperatures going down into the teens tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, still breezy, though. Temperatures in the low 20s, and for Christmas Day on Sunday, sunshine with highs in the upper 20s. It is 51 degrees. In Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D A T A I K U dot com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. Screening tests like mammograms and colonoscopies can catch certain cancers early. But for most deadly cancers, there are no screening tests. Research is underway to develop a simple blood test that could screen for multiple kinds of cancer at once. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, some people are already getting this kind of cancer screening by accident. When Kathleen Oxtakalnis was expecting her first child, she got a prenatal test that's become pretty routine. The test takes a sample of a pregnant person's blood, and it looks for bits of free-floating DNA. Some of this DNA is released by cells in the placenta. That means it can be used to screen the pregnancy for chromosomal abnormalities like Down syndrome. It can also reveal the baby's sex. Oxtakalnis says all her friends who had babies had gotten this test. They're like, oh, it's so exciting. You're going to find out, you know, all these different things from it. The first time she took the test, a nurse called back later and said there'd been some error. The results were inconclusive. So she got her blood drawn again. And again, the results came back inconclusive. Her nurse midwife said, I don't know what this means. So she just said, like, this is a result that's extremely rare and that I was the first example of someone in their practice having ever had this case. 
The nurse midwife suggested that Oxtacolnis and her husband speak to a genetic counselor. At that point, she says, I was more worried about the baby. I wasn't thinking anything about myself really at all. But the counselor explained that the free-floating DNA is actually a mixture. Some reflects the genetic makeup of the fetus, but even more of that DNA comes from the pregnant person's own cells. And if some of those cells are cancerous, that can actually mess with the results of this test. So that was like really difficult to wrap my head around. I wasn't expecting to hear anything about myself. Actually, though, there's a huge amount of research going on right now on using cell-free DNA to screen the blood for multiple kinds of cancer at once. President Biden's cancer moonshot has made the development of this kind of cancer screening a priority, as he noted in a recent speech. Imagine simple blood test during an annual physical that could detect cancer early for the chances to cure are best. That's the goal. But even though some of these tests do seem technically good at detecting DNA from cancerous cells, there's no definitive evidence yet that this information can be used to benefit people's health. We don't know, in fact, that they truly will pick up those cancers in a time frame where when you intervene, when you do something after that test to that patient, it makes a difference. That's Lori Manassian, Deputy Director for Cancer Prevention at the National Cancer Institute. Her agency is currently organizing a huge clinical trial for multi-cancer detection tests that will enroll 24,000 people and eventually may expand to over 200,000 to see if using them to screen can truly help. There's so much we don't know about this. We need to do the trials so we can get the information. In the meantime, it just wasn't clear what Oxtacolnis should do. Her counselor told her that there was one small clinical trial for pregnant folks like her, whose inconclusive test results might mean a cancer somewhere in the body was releasing DNA into the blood. One of the people who started this study is Diana Bianchi. She's head of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. We want to be able to tell them what to do with these results, both the healthcare providers and the patients. Her plan was to bring pregnant people to the clinical center at the National Institutes of Health, give them free full body MRI scans and an exhaustive blood workup. Everyone thought we were a little crazy at the beginning that it's gonna be so hard to recruit people and there's no way these healthy women are gonna have cancer. Because keep in mind, the people in this study got the testing not to be screened for cancer, but because they were intending to learn about a pregnancy. So they're all fairly young and seemingly healthy. Amy Turif is a genetic counselor at NIH. I think to the average person, if you have cancer, you don't feel well, you have some lump, bump, some sort of scary symptom, and that's just not the experience of the people who are being referred to us. She says that's why, in the end, they often choose not to participate in the study. Bianchi says those that do often end up getting troubling news. Over half of them do have a tumor. So this is not a trivial finding. This really needs to be taken seriously. She says all kinds of cancers have been detected. Rectal cancer, rare, once-in-a-million tumors... Oxtacolnis decided to go to the NIH Clinical Center with her husband, but she didn't really think anything was wrong. There could be some sort of like weird thing that pops up on there that's benign that just happens to like trigger this 
type of result. Like you just, there were other things that it could be. She let them draw numerous vials of blood. She spent over an hour in an MRI machine. At the end of the day, a team of doctors sat her down and said she had masses in her neck and chest that looked like lymphoma. I was like, lymphoma? Like, what's lymphoma? Hearing that news that you have cancer is just like, it's hard to describe. It's just such like an overwhelming experience. Especially because she was pregnant. Your emotions are kind of all over the place. And it was like definitely really difficult in the time. She underwent chemotherapy while pregnant, something that can be done safely. And she eventually had a healthy baby girl. Since then, she's needed more treatment, including a stem cell transplant that required her to be in the hospital for almost a month this fall. Now she's just happy to be home with her family. I'm also like incredibly grateful that I found out when I did and then found out like I could get treatment in an early stage and that it was safe during pregnancy. She hopes participating in that study and talking about all this will help other people understand their options when a test result unexpectedly raises the possibility of cancer. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why a bill has stalled in Congress that would grant legal status to tens of thousands of Afghans who came to the U.S. after the Taliban takeover last year. And this note now, if you're still looking for a last-minute holiday gift, tickets to WBUR's winter season at City Space are on sale. You can check out the lineup and get tickets at WBUR.org events. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Massachusetts fishermen. Set your holiday table with healthy, sustainable, fresh lobster, fish, and shellfish. Ask your server or retailer for the local catch. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. An Arctic front continues to move west to east across the U.S., bringing bitterly cold temperatures and wind chills to much of the country, and in some northern states, blizzard conditions. The roads are going to be very, very, very dangerous and very, very, very difficult. That's Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol says Donald Trump acted criminally to try to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The panel's final report covers more than 800 pages and accuses Trump of premeditated actions before his supporters assaulted the Capitol nearly two years ago. Here's NPR's Claudia Grisales. The report is eight chapters long, covering false claims of a stolen election, the fake elector scheme, and, quote, 187 minutes of dereliction, referencing Trump's inaction during the siege. One chapter is titled after a federal judge's description of Trump's post-2020 election efforts, calling it a, quote, coup in search of a legal theory. The committee interviewed more than a 1,000 witnesses during its 18-month investigation. On his social media site, Trump calls the findings highly partisan and notes the final report ignores his January 6th statement that his supporters should protest peacefully. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Today's winter storm is causing significant delays and cancellations at Logan Airport on this busy holiday travel day. The flat, uh, flight tracking website, FlightAware, says there are more than 200 cancellations at Logan so far today. Meantime, coastal communities are especially vigilant in Marblehead, a neighborhood known as the Neck, juts out into the ocean and is connected to the rest of the town by a causeway. Fire Chief and Emergency Management Coordinator Jason Gilliland says big storms often wash large rocks and debris onto the causeway, making it inaccessible. So they have emergency crews there. Police, fire, DPW, water and sewer. So those people are taking care of it as well because if we're not able to access the neck. we got to have our resources over there to protect that area as well. The National Weather Service says coastal flooding is expected along the North Shore today from Marblehead to Newburyport. A spike in COVID cases is reflected in Boston area wastewater levels. Samples from the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority show that COVID levels detected in areas north of Boston are up more than 140 percent since Thanksgiving. Levels south of the city have also risen 85 percent. The State Department of Public Health has used the amount of coronavirus found in wastewater to help predict COVID waves throughout the pandemic. Today's the last day to enroll with the Massachusetts Health Connector if you want your insurance coverage to start by January 1st. The Health Connector gives income-qualifying residents access to medical and dental insurance. A group of Climate activists stopped a coal train in Westford yesterday. The train was headed for Bow, New Hampshire, the home of the last running coal-fired power plant in the region. Mara Hoplamazian reports that the effort was part of a campaign to try to end the burning of fossil fuels. The activists first made sure the train was stopped. Then two people locked themselves to the train tracks. Nathan Phillips, a professor at Boston University, was one of the people locked down. In a live stream posted to Facebook, he called on leaders to stop subsidizing coal. Business as usual, status quo profiteering, and wanton damage to our climate and frontline communities is no longer acceptable. Phillips said the group was also calling on the rail company to treat workers fairly. He was arrested in Massachusetts along with the other protester locked to the tracks, but the charges have already been dismissed, he said. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. The time is 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com slash careers. In sports, Bruins beat the Winnipeg Jets last night. The final score, 3-2. to two. They'll hit the ice again tonight on the road in New Jersey. The Celtics play Minnesota at home tonight, and the Patriots play tomorrow. They'll take on the Cincinnati Bengals during an afternoon home game. In our weather forecast, Rain, wind today, strong gusts topping 50 miles an hour. Temperatures today up around 60 degrees. Tonight, windy with temperatures dropping into the teens. And tomorrow, mostly sunny, breezy. Highs will be in the 20s for Christmas Day. Sunshine, highs in the upper 20s. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. Now playing in theaters. This film is rated R. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology 
designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. For nearly three years, China used extremely strict testing and lockdown policies to keep COVID out. Then it abruptly lifted nearly all those controls as a COVID surge spread across the country. Public health experts are warning the country's healthcare system could now be overwhelmed. NPR's Emily Fang joins us to talk about the outbreak. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. So, Emily, what are things like right now in China? Has the healthcare system been able to keep up with this surge? So far, it appears yes, but barely. And that's because the surge in China is forecast to get way worse this month and into January. Anecdotally, everyone I know in Beijing has basically come down with COVID already in the last month, and it's spreading to other cities. A Shanghai hospital warned this week that half of the city's population, that's about 12.5 million people, could be infected wow. by just the end of next week. Um, There are long lines already outside of funeral homes and crematoria that we've visited in Beijing. Crematoria are telling us that their waiting list is now more than one week, which is unusual. Pharmacies in the countryside have been emptied of fever and pain medication. But the good news is that outside fever clinics and hospitals in Beijing that we visited this week is pretty busy, but it's actually pretty orderly. Unfortunately, we've seen in other pandemics that there's usually a lag of about a month after initial outbreak before we really start to see an increase in deaths and severe cases. And in China, that's supposed to happen in January. So what are public health experts saying about how bad it could get? Their predictions vary widely, but they're all pretty devastating. There was one model last week from the University of Hong Kong that estimates up to nearly 1 million people will die if China doesn't mount a new vaccine booster campaign. And then this month, the U.S.'s Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation predicts up to half a million deaths just by April if China doesn't have new travel and mask mandates. And the reason why they vary so widely is a model is only as good as the data that you put into it. And right now, there's no accurate data from China on infections. In fact, the WHO said this week that China has not released hospital data since early this month on who is coming in with COVID. For this, I talked to Ray Yip. He's an epidemiologist who founded the U.S. CDC office in China in 2003, and more recently, the China office for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They're going to do the same thing what they did in Wuhan. In Wuhan, unless you have a a confirmed PCR test, they're not going to call you a case of COVID in the beginning. So that's why the number of death in Wuhan was only 4,000. I'm sure it's at least four or five times that much. And uh, what's happening in China right now, the death rate is probably, you know, in the thousands and every day, but they're only willing to report, you know, small handful of it. He's referring here to the extremely strict standards that China uses to determine who dies of COVID. So strict, in fact, that officially only two people have died in this latest surge, which just does not match up with what people are going through on the ground. So where does China go from here? Well, it can only get worse because the real concern now is holiday travel. China has its Lunar New Year in late January, but people are already traveling home now for the holiday and they're bringing the virus with them from cities to villages where the healthcare system is even patchier. But in China, the trend is still towards rapid, full-scale opening up. In fact, some cities like Chengdu, for example, are already reducing their quarantine requirements for inbound travelers coming from other countries. This was just simply unthinkable about a month ago when China was in the full throttle of zero COVID. That's NPR's Emily Fang. Thank you, Emily.
Thank you so much, Layla. In Ukraine, the date on which to celebrate Christmas is vigorously debated. Some prefer December 25th, but others celebrate it on January 7th, a tradition closely associated with Russia and the Eastern Orthodox Church. With the ongoing war, the question has taken on new meaning, as NPR's Tim Mack reports from Ukraine. It's a foggy day with snow on the ground outside the Kiev Pechersk Lavra a historic Eastern Orthodox Christian site in Ukraine's capital city, founded as a cave monastery in the 11th century. The person waiting for us is Father Mykola Danilevich, a spokesperson for one of the Ukrainian Orthodox churches, which has historically had deep ties to Moscow. What country are you from? America. From America, yes, yes. yes. Uh, we will go. The power is out in the building, the result of recent Russian strikes on energy infrastructure. In a dark room, he explains, the dispute over dates is really a dispute over calendars. Hundreds of years ago, when the West was switching from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, the Orthodox Church decided to stick with the old calendar when it came to the celebration of Christmas. We actually celebrate the 25th of December just by the Julian calendar. And by the new calendar, it happens to be on the 7th of January. Danilevich says that the debate over which day to celebrate Christmas has intensified since the Russian occupation of Crimea in 2014. The Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine this year has further inflamed these passions. You know, in Ukraine now, everything is emotional. Regardless of topic, it is emotional. Sebastian Dmitruk, a Catholic monk, met us at a religious museum in Lviv, Ukraine, where he's the director and the leader of a local congregation. I asked them, probably four weeks ago, when do we want to celebrate? The whole church answered they want to celebrate 25th of December. They felt this way despite the inconveniences it could entail. So, at this time of war, people are even more open to speaking out. They are saying we don't want to celebrate with the Russians. Dimitruk says he's been traveling throughout western Ukraine over the past few days, and he's surprised about how frequently the question has been brought up. People, even people from the small villages, want it, and they want it desperately. Part of the division is generational and comes from the ties of long-standing tradition. In my home, we always had this really vivid Christmas celebration. 60-year-old Alexandra Kirichuk is the assistant director of the Museum of Religion in Lviv. She has fond memories of Christmas dishes like kutya, a grain dish with gravy, and pampuk, these sweet Ukrainian pastries. As a religious scholar, as a scientist, I understand that we need to celebrate on the 25th of December. But as an individual that is tied to those traditions that have been in my family, I won't have this sacredness on the 25th. But in January, it's something divine, mystical. Daria Kostyuk is an 18-year-old law student who, like Kirichuk, is a Greek Catholic. But she doesn't share the same view on Christmas dates. She strongly supports celebrating on December 25th. And she says many people her age would agree with her. I didn't want to have anything common with Russia. So that's why I want to celebrate with Europe and all world. Still, she said, regardless of which date people choose to celebrate, she had one Christmas wish peace on the whole earth, 
and in particular, peace in Ukraine. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, retiring Massachusetts Health and Human Services Secretary Mary Lou Sutters looks back at her eight years on the job, including helping guide the state through the pandemic. In our weather forecast, rain today, strong winds, a coastal flood warning is posted this afternoon, highs in the 50s today. Tonight, the rain will taper off. It'll still be windy this evening. Temperatures going down into the teens. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, still breezy. Temperatures in the low 20s. It is 51 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. In business news, UMass Memorial Health is reporting a loss of almost $40 million this year, and that's actually down from a nearly $65 million drop in 2021. Hospital officials blame the pandemic and inflation. Somerville-based Form Energy is building its first battery plant in West Virginia. Form Energy makes iron-based batteries that are used as backup for electric utilities. The company's getting more than $700 million for the project. The Mountain Barn in Princeton is reopening as The Barn next year. The restaurant closed in August of last year because of staffing. It's been in business for more than 40 years. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts' longest-serving Health and Human Services Secretary is retiring. Mary Lou Sutter says her retirement becomes effective when Maura Healy takes over the governor's office January 5th. We sat down with Sutter's in East Boston last week at a ribbon-cutting for one of the two dozen community behavioral health centers expected to open across the state. It's part of what's known as the Baker Administration administration's behavioral health roadmap. Sutter says she considers that roadmap and these community behavioral health facilities a centerpiece of what she's accomplished during her eight years as secretary. I think that this is a major marker for families, particularly trying to access care as early as possible. It feels good to be here both physically to see the space and, you know, I have hope that this will open up that ambulatory front door that so many people just can't even find the pathway in. You know, roadmaps sound great, right, in theory, and now we're going to start to, we're going to see it in action, and that's what I'm excited about. Uh, Well, part of this is also the problem with emergency rooms and emergency departments, right? And uh, there are diversion efforts. I know that's a long conversation, right? But I just wonder how diversion is going, do you think? And, and what, how does it go, where does it go from here? So diversion was, uh, is a stopgap. 
in response to the immediacy of what emergency room departments are experiencing. And as we're implementing the roadmap, the diversion programs that we put in place since I think last, feels like a lifetime ago, last February, was to really lean in with emergency departments. Could we create trust and help people, families particularly, you know, leave the emergency department with the clinical supports around them? And it has been effective. The, the entire healthcare system does not have throughput. So people are having a difficult time being discharged from hospital, both on the physical healthcare side and the behavioral healthcare side. Inpatient can't move to the next level, and emergency departments, right, are that ultimate front door. Emergency diversion helps. Uh, We have some uh, accelerated discharge planning going on for both longer-term care, people who need medical step-down, as well as working with the hospitals on some uh, expedited uh, discharges, safe discharges. When you look at your eight years, and what do you think, looking forward, you really hope continues on the path that you started? So first of all, um, I think I've made really strong appointments of both agency heads, but, you know, the next layers. Second is, I do think behavioral health. I think behavioral health will never be sidelined again. Now, do we have a lot of work to do? Absolutely. But that baseline is there. Like, no longer do I feel like from a long time ago when I would literally knock on people's doors and say, I'm here to talk about mental health, and people would literally look at me and sigh and say, that's just so complicated. Like, we embrace the complexity now and lean in. And I think that that gives a lot of people hope. Um, You know, I think there'll be a lot of people who will uh, judge based on you know, COVID. Yeah, you also had those challenges, too, like that global pandemic, right? I mean, that... that I mean, I, you know... Uh, what would you have, I mean... Well, it interrupted. What would you have done differently, though? Um, you know, the pandemic interrupted so much of our work and progress, obviously, for the right reason, right? If, 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 you, if we didn't manage the pandemic, nothing else was going to matter. You know, by all, all measures today, you know, Massachusetts is a leader. I think I am comfortable with making many decisions uh, with incomplete data. And when, you know, we had missteps, we were honest about it and pivoted. It took me probably a month to realize that states were really on their own. I, I guess I just didn't believe that as someone who's been in public service for a long time, It was hard for me to imagine that states really were on their own. And it was when uh, we had that very public, um, the federal government uh, taking the uh, masks uh, that we had paid for um, by force majeure at the um, Port of New Jersey. That was, honestly, that was like a very sinking moment for me. When you just, you know, that was like that visceral reaction, like, what? The federal government just took what we had paid for? And then we were, you know, bartering ventilators with other states, finding masks wherever we could. Um, I think that that, uh, you know, that's one of those defining moments in public service. What are you going to do next? Are you helping with the transition, I presume? You know, the governor made it very clear um, that he expected a really uh, smooth transition. And we've had very, very good back and forth 
with the incoming administration, who I have tremendous regard for. And next steps for you? Do you have anything you're ready to talk about yet? No, I don't. I don't. Because, you know, I still, we still have a lot of work to do, and we need to ensure a smooth transition. That's Mary Lou Sutters, who's retiring next month after eight years as Massachusetts Health and Human Services Secretary. In our weather forecast, rainy today, windy, temperatures up near 60 degrees today. Tonight, the rain will taper off, but it will still be breezy with strong wind gusts. Temperatures going down into the teens tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine, windy, temperatures in the low 20s. It's 51 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, with seasonal exhibit All Aboard Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at MOS.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. So it's hard to believe, but it's been 30 years since we first met Crumpet the Elf. Crumpet is the alter ego of writer and humorist David Sedaris. In 1992, here on Morning Edition, Sedaris read excerpts from his Santaland Diaries, an offbeat take on the holidays from the perspective of a Macy's department store elf. That essay helped launch David Sedaris' career as playwright and humorist. It was also the beginning of a Morning Edition holiday tradition. So here, once again, is David Sedaris as Crumpet. I wear green velvet knickers, a forest green velvet smock, and a perky little hat decorated with spangles. This is my work uniform. I have spent the last several days sitting in a crowded, windowless Macy's classroom undergoing the first phases of elf training. You could be an entrance elf, a water cooler elf, a bridge elf, train elf, maze elf, island elf, magic window elf, usher elf, cash register elf, or exit elf. We were given a demonstration of various positions in action, acted out by returning elves who were so on stage and goofy that it made me a little sick to my stomach. I don't know that I could look anyone in the eye and exclaim, Oh my goodness, I think I see Santa. Or, can you close your eyes and make a very special Christmas wish? Everything these elves say seems to have an exclamation point on the end of it. It makes one's mouth hurt to speak with such forced merriment. It embarrasses me to hear people talk this way. I think I'll be a low-key sort of elf. 22,000 people came to see Santa today, and not all of them were well-behaved. Today I witnessed fistfights and vomiting and magnificent tantrums. The back hallway was jammed with people. There was a line for Santa and a line for the women's bathroom. And one woman, after asking me a thousand questions already, asked, which is the line for the women's bathroom? And I shouted that I thought it was the line with all the women in it. She said, I'm going to have you fired. I had two people say that to me today. I'm going to have you fired. Go ahead, be my guest. I'm wearing a green velvet costume. It doesn't get any worse than this. Who do these people think they are? I'm going to have you fired. And I want to lean over and say, I'm going to have you killed. The overall cutest elf is a fellow from Queens named Richie. His elf name is Snowball, and he tends to ham it up with the children, sometimes tumbling down the path to Santa's house. 
I generally gag when elves get that cute, but Snowball is hands down adorable. You want to put him in your pocket. Yesterday, Snowball and I worked as Santa elves, and I got excited when he started saying things like, I'd follow you to Santa's house any day, Crumpet. It made me dizzy, this flirtation. By mid-afternoon, I was running into walls. By late afternoon, Snowball had cooled down. By the end of our shift, we were in the bathroom, changing our clothes, and all of a sudden, we were surrounded by five Santas and three other elves. All of them were guys that Snowball had been flirting with. Snowball just leads elves on, elves and Santas. This morning I worked as an exit elf, telling people in a loud voice, this way out of Santa land. A woman was standing at one of the cash registers, paying for her pictures while her son lay beneath her, kicking and heaving, having a tantrum. The woman said, Riley, if you don't start behaving yourself, Santa's not going to bring you any of those toys you asked for. The child said, he is too going to bring me toys, liar. He already told me. The woman grabbed my arm and said, you there, elf. Tell Riley here that if he doesn't start behaving immediately, then Santa's going to change his mind and bring him coal for Christmas. I said that Santa changed his policy and no longer traffics in coal. Instead, if you're bad, he comes to your house and steals things. I told Riley that if he didn't behave himself, Santa was going to take away his TV and all his electrical appliances and leave him in the dark. The woman got a worried look on her face and said, All right, that's enough. I said, He's going to take your car and your furniture and all of your towels and blankets and leave you with nothing. The mother said, No, that's enough. Really. This afternoon, I was stuck being photo well for Santa Santa. Santa Santa has an elaborate little act for the children. He'll talk to them and give a hearty chuckle and ring his bells, and then he asks them to name their favorite Christmas carol. Santa then asks if they'll sing it for him. The children are shy and don't want to sing out loud, so Santa Santa says, Oh, little elf, little elf, help young Brenda here sing that favorite carol of hers. Late in the afternoon, a child said she didn't know what her favorite Christmas carol was. Santa Santa suggested Away in a Manger. The girl agreed to it, but didn't want to sing because she didn't know the words. Santa Santa said, Oh, little elf, little elf, come sing Away in the Manger for us. It didn't seem fair that I should have to solo, so I sang it the way Billie Holiday might have sang if she'd put out a Christmas album. Away in a manger. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. Santa Santa did not allow me to finish. This evening I was sent to be a photo elf. Once a child starts crying, it's all over. The parents had planned to send these pictures as cards or store them away until the child is grown and can lie, claiming to remember the experience. Tonight I saw a woman slap and shake her crying child. She yelled, Rachel, get on that man's lap and smile or I'll give you something to cry about. Then she sat Rachel on Santa's lap and I took the picture, which supposedly means, on paper, that everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be, that everything is snowy and wonderful. It's not about the child or Santa or Christmas or anything, but the parents' idea of a world they cannot make work for them.
reading from his essay, The Santaland Diaries, first heard on this program 30 years ago. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. Wishing you a Merry Christmas. I'm Layla Faldid. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. North Korea fired two short-range missiles, presumably in response to U.S. and South Korean joint military drills. It's Friday, December 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, the major winter storm that's disrupting holiday travel. Thousands of flights have been delayed or canceled. In Massachusetts, the strong winds are causing outages. The wind will continue to gust to 50 miles per hour. A few 60 mile per hour gusts outage numbers will climb through the day along with the damage reports. Also this hour, we hear from the White House COVID response coordinator about respiratory viruses and what Americans need to know to stay healthy during the holidays. Plus some federal concerns about TikTok. Again, that forecast, rainy, strong wind gusts today, and then it'll be cold and blustery this weekend. It's 801. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House Select Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol building has released its final report. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the panel spent 18 months looking into the events that led up to the deadly insurrection. In more than 800 pages and over the course of eight chapters, the report details what led the panel to recommend four criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump. The panel says that while the danger to the Capitol by an armed and angry crowd was foreseeable, the fact that a president would be the catalyst was unprecedented. The report also says, quote, if we lack the imagination to suppose that a president would incite an attack on his own government, it goes on to say that we lack that insight no more. The report adds the best defense against that danger in the future will not come from law enforcement, but rather an informed and active citizenry. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. A powerful winter storm is bringing heavy snow, freezing rain, and below-zero temperatures to many parts of the United States. The weather is causing major disruptions in air travel, with more than 3,000 flights canceled into or out of the U.S. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul has declared a state of emergency. Ava Pukach from member station WRBO reports residents there are being urged to stay off the roads. Governor Kathy Hochul describes the storm as a kitchen sink event, with ice, snow, and freezing rain affecting the state through the holiday weekend. She says with low wind chills in several parts of the state, road conditions are going to be horrific, asking New Yorkers to avoid all travel Friday if possible. Ava Pukach reporting. 
The U.S. Census Bureau says the country's population grew by more than a million people this year. NPR's Hansi Lowang reports the growth was led by the South, especially Texas. According to the latest population estimates from the Census Bureau, the number of people moving in and out of the U.S. helped boost the country's population to over 333 million. It's a sign the Bureau says that migration patterns are returning to the levels they were at before the coronavirus pandemic began. The Bureau also estimates that the South was the fastest-growing region of the country this past year. A regional bump was also driven by newcomers from both outside the U.S. and around the country. Texas is a state that the Bureau estimates grew the most. The Lone Star State now joins California as the only states with more than 30 million residents. Hansi Luong, NPR News, Washington. Authorities say at least two people are dead and several others were wounded after a shooting in Paris today. Police have arrested a 69-year-old suspect in the attack. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Today's winter storm is causing delays at Logan Airport on this busy holiday travel weekend. The flight tracking website FlightAware says right now there are more than 200 canceled flights. Most of those are Cape Air flights, every scheduled SkyWest and Allegiant Air flight for today has been canceled. Massport Aviation Director Ed Frenny has some advice for travelers. So we suggest that people contact their airline and, try, and, and see if there's any impact on their scheduled flight before they come. He also warns that no matter the conditions at Logan, bad weather in other areas of the country will cause delays and cancellations here in Boston. The Newton Public Schools are closed today because of the weather. A handful of schools in other communities along the coast, including Ipswich, Nauset, and Orleans, closed today. Many schools are scheduled for a half day today or already have the day off as part of the holiday break. Massachusetts has about 45,000 acres of salt marsh, and it does a lot of good, filtering water, protecting homes from storm surge, and storing carbon in the soil. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, new research points to substantial losses of salt marsh globally, mostly because of climate change. Over the last 20 years, the area of salt marsh being lost globally was equal in size to about one soccer field an hour. And most of the loss in the U.S. is due to climate change, says Lola Fatiyinbo, a research scientist with NASA. So what's happening is because the storms are becoming more intense and more frequent within a season, the marshes actually can't recover from these really intense storms, and so they are dying off. Massachusetts organizations recently won more than $4 million in federal grants to restore salt marshes and increase coastal resilience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Officials in Bristol County say they've set up sobriety checkpoints starting right now, and those will run through to uh, run through tomorrow. Meantime, the Massachusetts State Police are issuing warnings about driving under the influence. Police say they're not checking specific cars in Bristol County, and screenings will be done at random hours. The time is six minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. In sports, it was a victory for the Bruins last night. They beat Winnipeg at the Garden. They're playing again tonight, this time scheduled on the road against New Jersey. The Celtics are looking to break a bit of a losing streak when they play the Timberwolves tonight at the 
the Garden, and the Patriots are getting ready for a Saturday home game against the Bengals. In our weather forecast, rainy, very windy today, gusts as high as 50 miles an hour today. Outages are expected because of the high winds in Massachusetts. Temperatures, though, getting up near 60 degrees today. Tonight, the rain tapers off, but it will remain windy. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says temperatures tonight are going to plunge. Some leftover rain showers early this evening will change to snow showers as cold air blasts in and temperatures drop quickly. So slippery travel and some icy spots will develop on anything untreated. She says temperatures tonight will be in the teens. Tomorrow, sun returns. Still breezy, though. Temperatures in the low 20s. And for Christmas Day on Sunday, sunshine highs in the upper 20s. It is 51 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. Good morning. The holidays are here and millions of people are getting together with their loved ones this weekend. But they'll likely be joined by several uninvited guests, COVID, RSV, the flu, and the old school seasonal cold. Because is it a holiday without a surge of winter illnesses? For some guidance on how to stay healthy this holiday season, let's turn to Dr. Ashish Shah, the White House's COVID response coordinator. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Okay, so this weekend is going to be filled with people sitting around tables, eating, talking, laughing, basically a germ fest. So what (laughs) advice do you have for people to both enjoy the holiday and be healthy? Yeah. Um, So first of all, it's obviously been a really difficult couple of years. Yeah. Nice for people to be able to gather again safely. and, And the number one thing that we can all do to make sure that we are gathering safely is being up to date on our vaccines. Yeah. It really is, both flu and COVID. We have terrific vaccines. They've both been updated this year. And I understand for some people who may say, well, I'm gathering this weekend, is it too late? You know, it's still going out and getting it right now um, will mean that you'll start having some protection within about a week. And so that's number one. I think that's really important. You know, if you're gathering with somebody who's high risk, then taking a test for COVID before you gather can really make a difference too. That's what we have done in our families when I gather with my elderly parents, just making sure no one's bringing along that uninvited guest. And then last but not least, certainly if people, somebody gets ends up getting infected, making sure they get treated. Paxlovid for COVID, Tamiflu for influenza. Um, we really have effective treatments. If we do these things, gathering safely becomes much more possible. Let's talk about Tamiflu and Paxlovid. I mean, the administration announced it's releasing more of the antiviral drug Tamiflu from the national stockpile. Yeah. Paxlovid, is that, is that widely available now for those under 50? Yeah, so both, first of all, we have plenty of both of those drugs. Okay. Um, we have plenty of Paxlovid, Tamiflu. We've got this in the, in the strategic national stockpile. We're releasing them uh, right now because there is an increased demand. Um, I do believe anybody over 50 who gets infected with either of these two viruses should get treated. Under 50, um, the evidence that it's going to be beneficial is just not as good, partly because people under 50 are at lower risk. Obviously, if you're under 50 and have chronic conditions, then that changes the ballgame. But certainly anyone over 50 should absolutely get considered for treatment. You mentioned get vaccinated, but the vaccination rate for the booster is incredibly low. I think about 15% at this point. I mean, is there anything you're doing to get people out there and and get vaccinated? Yeah, so we've, you know, we've taken a multi-pronged strategy here, right? And first, it begins with just making it widely available. So it is everywhere. You can get it at CBS, Walgreens, your doctor's office. But does it lots matter if people places. aren't getting it? 
Yeah, the second is trying to communicate to people the importance of this. You know, I think part of it is it's been a long pandemic. A lot of people think, well, I got I got my vaccines last year. Do I really need it? Yeah. Reminding people, I don't count on my last year's flu vaccine to get me through this winter. It's the same thing with COVID. You can't rely on your booster from six months or nine months ago to get you through COVID this winter, given that the virus that's circulating is so different. So, you know, and the last thing, uh, Leila, is that we're really starting to work much more closely with trusted messengers, religious leaders, political, uh, social leaders, helping them really carry the message because it really is a shared responsibility to get Americans vaccinated this winter. In the few seconds we have left, I mean, we got some pretty upsetting news this week from the CDC. Americans' life expectancy has dropped for the second year in a row, partly due to COVID, but also drug overdoses. Your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, again, I start with where I began earlier, which is it's been a very difficult two years for Americans. Um, in the first year, we I think I would argue that in 2020, we really botched the pandemic response. We're now at a point where these deaths are becoming unnecessary. If people stayed up to date on their vaccines and got treated, no one really needs to die. So we can do better here. Dr. Ashish Shah, thank you so much for your time. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays. The Horn of Africa is suffering its worst drought on record, according to NASA. In Somalia, the lack of rain has forced more than a million people from their homes this year. Aid agencies say more than half the Somali population could be facing food shortages in the coming year. And a famine may be declared in some parts of the parched East African nation. NPR's Jason Bobian reports. On the northwestern edge of Mogadishu, hundreds of makeshift shelters are squeezed into a dusty lot. This child here that they're combing the hair... He looks quite thin, or she looks quite thin, and the hair is looking red. Could we ask this, this woman in particular about her child? Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. My translator, Abdurrahman Hussein, and I approach a woman sitting with a group of children in front of a tarp-covered hut. This camp is one of hundreds that have sprung up this year around Mogadishu and other cities as Somalis have fled drought-stricken parts of the country. An older girl here, wrapped in a bright yellow shawl, is combing the hair of an emaciated younger child. You see this little girl you see in front of you, both her parents passed away. She's an orphan. She's orphan. Both her parents passed away. The matriarch of the group, Khadijo Nur Ali, says the thin girl is the daughter of a relative. Her arms hang limp by her side and her hair has faded red, a classic sign of malnutrition. Now, Khadijo, a 35-year-old single mother, looks after this girl as well as her own six children. Khadijo had been working as a farm laborer in a rural part of the country, but after the fourth rainy season in a row failed, there was no work. So she came here to this camp in Mogadishu two months ago in hopes of getting food aid. Has there been any assistance from international groups or from the government or from anyone? (laughs) We have been here for two months. We haven't get any help at all, except for the laundries and the water. Except for the toilets, toilets, toilets and the water. And, and the water. And the water taps. Yeah, water taps yeah. Yeah. That's it. Khadija says she and her children survive off money she makes doing casual labor in Mogadishu. Sometimes she can get a few hours work washing clothes for families in the city. We are living in a very hard condition. I go to the city to do a laundry, laundry service at home. After, if I get it, it's okay. I'll buy some food and come back to my family and cook them. If I get nothing, 
I go back, then all the children, I tell them to go to bed to sleep with hunger. Other residents in the camp tell similar stories. They came here because they heard that they could get food, but they found that that isn't the case. Nima Elmenur, a local volunteer who helps organize this camp and advocate for the residents, says every week 20 to 30 more families arrive here with only a few meager possessions. Is anyone distributing food here in this camp? Absolutely no. No food distribution at all. The drought, which started two years ago, comes on top of surging global food prices and a battle against al-Shabaab extremists, which has made parts of the country inaccessible. Severely malnourished children are filling the intensive care units of local hospitals. Doctors say some kids are already starving to death. Aid groups warn that with no significant rain on the horizon, parts of Somalia could slip into a full-scale famine by April of next year. What we are uh, seeing in Somalia is this cycle of droughts. Victor Chinyama is with UNICEF in Mogadishu. That in the past used to happen over longer intervals, but increasingly now the intervals are becoming shorter and shorter. And they're hitting Somalia in constant waves. Entire herds of goats and sheep have died as grazing lands dried out, leaving nothing for the animals to eat. Crops have failed for two years in a row. Chinyama says in the past, Somali farmers would slowly rebuild their flocks and reestablish their fields. But now, he says, the climactic shocks are coming so quickly, it's harder for them to recover. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mogadishu, Somalia. You've heard about the 12 days of Christmas. In some cultures, they celebrate nine. NPR's Carmen Molina Acosta brings us her family's Colombian tradition. There's this thing my family does every year around Christmas, but it's kind of hard to explain. We celebrate for nine days, but it's not Hanukkah or even Chrismica. It's a tradition most people have never heard of. It's called the Novena, the Novena de Aguinaldos. Technically speaking, a Novena is a series of prayers, a Catholic practice where you pray for nine days straight. This particular Novena was written by a friar in the 1700s, and over time, it's become a Colombian Christmas tradition. Colombia is a majority Catholic country, though my family isn't religious, and we left Colombia when I was two months old. But every year, we gather with a group of Colombian friends for as many of the nine nights as we can. There's three parts to the Novena de Aguinaldos. The first is the most nerve-wracking, the readings. It's like a Spanish oral exam. We pass around a prayer book, and each kid takes a turn reading. But it gets better. The gozos, which literally translates as the joys. That's where the music comes in. Grab a maraca, a drum, a tin can, Whatever you can use to make noise, you better make it. And then my favorite part, the Viancicos, Spanish Christmas carols. Very few of us know all the lyrics and no one is ever in tune, but that's not the point. Oh, and then all the food, empanadas, buñuelos, pan de yuca, arepas, ajiaco. And on weekends, dancing, late into the night. Like a lot of immigrant communities, it sometimes feels like we're carrying on a tradition from a place of memory. My cousins in Colombia don't really celebrate novenas, and 
If they did, they probably wouldn't look anything like ours. More and more each year in Maryland, the novenas feel a little more fragile. People move away, go off to college, and grow up. But somehow still every year, we all come together one more time. Carmen Molina Costa, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the beloved record store Record Revolution in Ohio is closing after more than 50 years in business. It's 20 minutes past 8. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Massachusetts fishermen. Set your holiday table with healthy, sustainable, fresh lobster, fish, and shellfish. Ask your server or retailer for the local catch. Music heals the soul. Can it also heal the body? Decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure. We affect their perception of pain. Actually improve their response to stressors in their environment, like illness and disease. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, rain today, strong winds, gusts as high as 50 miles an hour. A coastal flood warning is in effect through this afternoon. Temperatures today getting up near 60 degrees. Tonight, the rain should taper off. It'll still be windy tonight. Temperatures dropping into the teens tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, breezy, highs in the 20s. And for Christmas Day on Sunday, sunshine. Temperatures in the upper 20s. It is 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Searchlight Pictures, presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in theaters everywhere. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with kitchen products, too. Featuring a curated selection of brands, including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at BedBathAndBeyond.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil. Good morning. One of the country's oldest independent record stores is going out of business. Record Revolution has been a fixture in the music scene around Cleveland for more than five decades. It has seen the changes in music production from vinyl to cassettes and CDs to streaming and back to vinyl. Kabir Batia from member station WKSU reports that there are just a few days left for its customers to visit. It was 1967. The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper was turning listeners on and turning the music business on its ear. For almost a century, records had been sold mostly through appliance stores, drug stores, and musical instrument shops. But as boomers came of age, independent stores like Cleveland's Record Revolution offered a new experience with clerks who lived and breathed the latest music. For 15 years, one of them was Rob Love, and he became a co-owner in 2004. We were career music enthusiasts, you you know what I mean? Like, I can't 
think of anybody that wasn't also a musician or also involved in music in some other aspect of their life. Today, dusty stacks of 45s line a few shelves in the basement during Record Revolution's big going-out-of-business sale. There's also a bargain bin with albums by Dan Fogelberg and Barbara Streisand, and one wall of new and rare LPs awaiting a new home. For years, it's been the go-to music stop for Stacy Cohen, who found the store in the 1980s. I remember buying Madonna and Cyndi Lauper buttons and tapes and stuff like that. I remember when the True Blue Madonna album came out, coming here to buy that. And we were really excited about that, putting the buttons on our jean jackets. Despite vinyl's comeback over the past decade, sales at Record Revolution have still been slow. One big factor is the music industry's shift to streaming music. Joey Dean and Ellie Montenegro, both in their 20s, do download their favorite music, but they frequently spend date night vinyl hunting. They both like the experience that comes with buying records at a brick and mortar store. It's more personal because you kind of collect them and then you can pull one out and be like, oh, I remember we found this at wherever. Or like when you find a really good one, when you've been like browsing for an hour, it's, it's a really fun experience. Oh, because it's so much better to just flip through the records and go stand by stand and talk to people that are here. Rob Love says that sales have been, quote, tremendous since he announced last month that they're closing. The bump in interest <laughs> and the bump in foot traffic if, if we could have done consistently a quarter or a third of this kind of business, uh, you know, of course I would keep it going. But, you know, it's not. <laughs> That's not the case. You know, everybody loves you when you're dead. Record Revolution will close its doors on December 31st. Love says he'll miss his customers and he'll really miss the thrill of introducing people to new music. For NPR News, I'm Kabir Bhatia in Cleveland. Time now for StoryCorps. Thousands of Americans apply every year for the chance to help decorate the White House for the holiday season. Just 150 are picked for the job. This year, Marite Sanchez was one of the chosen few, and she knew right away who she'd bring with her, her husband, Hugo. You are my partner in everything, so I could not imagine going and not being with you. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful seeing you in the White House. You just shine so bright, I have to squint a little bit because it's so impressive. Hugo and Marate struck up a summer romance when he was visiting their hometown of Pura, Peru. They were 16 and 15. Recording for StoryCorps at the White House, they remembered their first kiss. I remember we're sitting side by side. We locked eyes and I <laughs> planted a kiss and you didn't slap me. So that was a success. My heart was racing. It was that spark. Cartoons when the fireworks go off and <laughs> the sun rises. That's how I felt. I wasn't ready for that. I was so, so, so deeply in love. <laughs> so I remember going to the airport and thinking, man, I haven't been this happy in years. Because I was alone in the U.S. Like, it was difficult to find someone to connect and understand you. And, and you gave me that over the summer. So I'm just bawling like a little kid, like, and my dad, he's like, snap out of it, you know, act like a man. But I was acting like a man. I was feeling love for someone that I was leaving behind. But that lit a fire made me think, I will move heaven and earth to be with her. And then after you went back, we spoke for, what, two, three hours? Every day. 
I remember working any odd job, mowing lawns, cleaning the cemetery. I was always praying for rain so the grass would grow faster so that I could go <laughs> mow again. So I could buy more phone cards to call you. And then I made the decision to come here, what, about three years into dating. And you were going to have to go back to Broome. And I said, okay, well, then let's get married. <laughs> so we went to the court. You know, a lot of people dream the dress and the flowers. I did not care about any of those things. I could see the real you. You changed me in a way that I didn't think could be possible. You gave me a reason to be better. Marité, Merry Christmas, Feliz Navidad. You're the gift that keeps on giving, and I'm so happy that you chose me to be your life partner. Oh, amor, that's so sweet. I think about our journey, and wow. How are we here? Pinch me. That was Marite Sanchez with her husband, Hugo Sanchez, at the White House. The couple has been married for 15 years. Their conversation will be archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition on this 30th anniversary of The Muppets' take on Dickens' A Christmas Carol, a longtime fan says the movie is resonating now more than ever. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More than 4,000 airline flight delays and cancellations are being reported today in the U.S. as an Arctic front continues moving west to east across the country. The affected flights include international ones. The National Weather Service has posted weather advisories and warnings across most of the country because of bitterly cold temperatures, strong winds, and in some areas, snow and blizzard conditions. Kathleen Bangs is with the tracking site FlightAware. She says any time weather reduces visibility for pilots and ground controllers, it causes delays. That slows everything down. And the airport has to then go into what's called 
instrument approaches. So the airlines can't come in and do a visual approach. They have to do instrument approaches, and those are much more time-consuming. Later today, the House is expected to pass a $1.7 trillion spending bill. It cleared the Senate yesterday with 18 Republicans voting to support it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was pleased. We've concluded this Congress, one of the most productive in decades, with one of the best omnibus packages in decades. Half of the money is for defense, including nearly $45 billion in additional U.S. aid to Ukraine. Authorities in France say a gunman has killed at least three people in central Paris today. A suspect is under arrest. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Local health care professionals say with respiratory ailments rising and a spike in COVID cases in area wastewater, residents should take precautions when planning holiday gatherings. Chief of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dr. Daniel Karitskis, says flu and COVID vaccines are important and people should be communicating before they get together. People should be open with each other and say, look, if you're not feeling well, uh, much as I'd like to see you, it'd be much better uh, for everybody's sake if you just stayed home this year and we'll find another time to get together. If you yourself are not feeling well, uh, I would extend the same courtesy to those who might be inviting you. The Massachusetts Medical Society also recommends everyone gathering indoors for the holidays wear a high-quality, tight-fitting mask, regardless of whether they're symptomatic. A retired Olympic women's running coach in Boston is facing a lifetime ban for alleged sexual misconduct. John Babington is accused of misconduct involving underage students decades ago. The ban comes after an investigation by the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Babington tells the Boston Globe that he acknowledges regret over his past conduct, but he said a permanent ban against him is unnecessary. The Puritans were not exactly known for their celebrations, even Christmas. In fact, at one point, Christmas was banned in Massachusetts. The so-called penalty for keeping Christmas was enacted by the Puritans in 1659, and anyone caught outwardly celebrating faced a fine. WBUR Stevie Chapman explains what led to the 22-year ban. Historians partially attribute the ban to Puritans' distaste for the holiday's pagan traditions. There's not scriptural evidence for Jesus Christ's birth on December the 25th. Jonathan Beecher Field is an associate professor at Clemson University who studies Puritans. He says some traditions also threaten social order, like when poor people drunkenly and sometimes violently went door to door demanding treats. Oh, bring us some figgy pudding and bring it out here. It's like, we won't go until we get some. I mean, it's a pretty aggressive Christmas carol. The ban ended in 1681, but Christmas wasn't widely recognized in Massachusetts until becoming a federal holiday nearly 200 years later. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. The time is 8.34. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. 
In sports, the Bruins were victorious at the Garden last night. They outscored the Winnipeg Jets 3-2. They skate with the New Jersey Devils on the road tonight. Celtics are also playing tonight against the Minnesota Timberwolves at home. And the Patriots will play at home tomorrow. They take on the Cincinnati Bengals at 1 p.m. In our weather forecast, rainy, windy today. Strong wind gusts as high as 50 miles an hour at times. Temperatures today getting up around 60 degrees Tonight, the rain will taper off. It will remain windy, though, with strong gusts tonight as well. Temperatures going down into the teens. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and breezy. Temperatures in the low 20s. And for Christmas Day on Sunday, sunshine with highs in the upper 20s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Muppets are celebrating a special anniversary. 30 years ago this month, The Muppet Christmas Carol premiered in movie theaters. Under the direction of Brian Henson, audiences watched Charles Dickens' tale interpreted by the likes of Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, and the great Gonzo. WBUR editor Sarah Shukla has been a fan of the film for as long as she can remember. In this commentary, she shares why the Muppet classic means even more to her this holiday season. I think the first thing to know about the Muppet Christmas Carol is how perfectly it was cast. I give it a 10 out of 10, no notes. Kermit the Frog, ever the voice of reason and patience, is a natural Bob Cratchit. Michael Caine, yes, the Michael Caine, as Scrooge, lends the story gravitas. And Gonzo's narration as Charles Dickens delivers. From he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, to... Tiny Tim, who did not die, that's all Dickens, straight from the original text. There goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. If it came a prize for being me, the winner would be him. Brian Henson made the film when he was just 28. His dad, Jim Henson, who created The Muppets, had died two years earlier. It was Brian's first time directing, and in his own words, he was terrified. But he decided to do things a little differently than the usual Muppets approach, by leaning into the darker elements of Dickens' text. Then he asked Paul Williams, who'd lost a decade to alcoholism and addiction, to return to the Muppet family to write some of the film's most beloved songs about love and redemption. The result is an enduring interplay of light and dark. You see it in Michael Caine playing Scrooge as if he's in a Shakespeare production. Now then, sir, about the uh, donation? Well, now, let's see. I know how to treat the poor. My taxes go to pay for the prisons and the poor houses. The homeless must go there. But some would rather die. If they'd rather die, then they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And in Kermit, reminding the Cratchit family and us of one of life's inevitable truths. It's all right, children. Life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I am sure we shall never forget Tiny Tim, 
or this first parting that there was among us. I loved this version of A Christmas Carol when I was a kid, precisely because it scared me, just a little. When the door knocker morphs into Marley's face and he moans, shivers. Jacob Marley. My six-year-old always snuggles in closer at that part. Then we laugh as Marley and Marley appear and sing their foreboding duet. True, there was something about mankind we loved. I think it was their money. <laughs> Doom Scrooge, you're doomed for all time. Your future is a horror story written by your crime. Your After spending many a Christmas Eve with Kermit and Gonzo, I've been thinking a lot about how life can change overnight. For example, one day you're packing school lunches, and the next your kids are home with Chromebooks, return date TBD. We all lived some version of that story. In the last three years, we've all lived a before and an after. At times, life felt as unimaginable as being visited by three spirits. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. But you're just a child. I can remember nearly 1,900 years. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. What business has brought you here? In the film's final song, Thankful Heart, the lyrics talk about how life is precious. The Muppets don't shy away from the dark places life inevitably takes us. And so the ending of the film is resoundingly joyous. Maybe that's how we should all try to walk into the new year, with a thankful heart. With a thankful heart, with an endless joy, with a growing family, every girl and boy will be nephew and niece to me. Sarah Schuchler is a writer and editor for WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. TV's favorite foul-mouthed kids celebrated a big anniversary this year. It all started with some twisted Christmas magic. I'm going down to South I'm going to have myself a time. South Park turned 25 over the summer, but Stan, Kyle, Cartman, and Kenny first appeared five years earlier in a student film about Christmas. Don't put the magic hat on the snowman. Why? Because if you do, he's going to come to life. Cool. Now it's not cool. My sister put a hat on a snowman and it tried to kill her. University of Colorado classmates Trey Parker and Matt Stone produced a crudely animated film called The Spirit of Christmas, the story of a demented snowman that's come to life. Oh my God, Frosty killed Kitty! Parker and Stone's work caught the attention of a young television producer named Brian Graydon. Within like 10 minutes, I realized that their humor had the same gestalt as mine and my buddies growing up. And so almost as a throwaway, I said, would you guys want to do my Christmas card this year? Graydon gave Parker and Stone $2,000 to rework the spirit of Christmas. Graydon planned to put it on VHS and give it out to his friends. Ho, ho, ho. We meet again, Jesus. You have blemished the meaning of Christmas for the last time, Kringle. The revamped cartoon featured a fight to the death between Jesus Christ and Santa Claus. I'm here to put an end to your blasphemy. This time we finish it. There can be only one. Go, Santa! Go, Jesus! In a time before viral videos, the spirit of Christmas spread pretty quickly. Graydon's friends made copies for their friends who made copies for their friends, and so on. 
people would start saying to me, hey, you have to see this Christmas card. And they would pop it in. And I realized that all of these people were showing me my Christmas card. That's when I began to realize the thing had taken off. And you know, the other thing that I had an awareness of is that these guys would over time have something to say because they had a great satirical sense. They were great observers of the world. So I probably always thought of it as something more than just a foul mouth cartoon. South Park went on to win several Emmy Awards and remains one of Comedy Central's highest rated programs. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to WBUR during your holidays. We have the news here along with stories, conversations, and reflections as we wrap up 2022 in Greater Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. In business news, gas prices are falling in Massachusetts as people get ready to travel for the holidays. According to AAA, the average price of a gallon of unleaded gas in Massachusetts is now $3.39. That's down $0.08 from a week ago, but $0.30 higher than the national average. Diesel is $5.25 a gallon in Mass, and that's down $0.11 from last week. The construction companies that built Worcester's Polar Park will pay near nearly $2 million in a settlement for overstating their use of minority and women-owned businesses involved in the project. Half a million dollars would go to the city to promote hiring minority-owned businesses for government contracts. Worcester requires bidders to use minority-owned businesses for 20 percent of work done in a city-sponsored build. The time is 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Well, a major winter storm is really putting a damper on holiday travel around the country, including here in the Boston area. We have flight delays, school closings, and people are being told to stay put for a bit if they can. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce is tracking the storm, and she joins us now with an extended look at the weather forecast. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Deborah. Great to be with you. Nice to be with you as well. So how's how's it looking today, at least? Let's start with today. <laughs> what, what should so, we expect? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, lot going on, a lot of different aspects with this storm. But I can say that the 
the height of the storm and the worst of the weather is over us pretty much right now. The wind has just been howling out there. We've had gusts over 50 miles per hour, and it's not just confined to one area. It's a lot of eastern Massachusetts, and that's why the outage numbers have been climbing through the tens of thousands already this morning, and those numbers will continue to climb through the day today. Mm-hmm. And so, so what do those gusts mean? Would you say for for damage? What what kind? What are we talking about? So we've already had a number of uh, damage reports coming in. Some limbs coming down. Some wires coming down. I'm talking dozens of reports already, and that's going to be the case. I'd say probably until about 10 a.m. or so, and then after that, we get a little lull in some of the wind gusts. By the evening, we're going to gust 40 to 50 miles per hour again. By the way, the next few hours, we may see a few gusts that go over 60 miles per hour in a couple spots inside of 495. So that's why those outage numbers are really ticking up here this morning. And so not mentioning any names, some people procrastinate. (laughs) They They may have a lot to do today, Danielle. When is a good time for people to go out and get some of some of their errands done? You need to do some last-minute gift shopping, Deborah. Do you need to, do you need to run I'm, out and I'm get a few things? I'm just saying, no names, no comment. <laughs> okay, all right. So I would say your best bet is probably either side of about lunchtime because we will get a little lull in the rain, the steadiest rain, and the wind won't be as strong as it is this morning. So if you have to do that, you know, I'd say midday through the afternoon. And the reason I say that too is because this evening we're going to get a blast of cold air that comes in. I mean, we're in the 50s right right now, okay? It's December 23rd. We're, you know, low to mid 50s region-wide. That's going to feel like a distant memory by this evening. The temperatures are going to come crashing down into the 30s, 20s, and teens tonight. With the wind factored in, the wind chill is going to go into the single digits. Uh, there's going to be, you know, some icy patches that result because of the moisture freezing on the road. So it does get a little bit tricky travel-wise again uh, this evening for sure. So get out there this afternoon if you or anyone else needs to. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the weekend, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day? And I take it uh, no white Christmas this year. Well interesting that you say that because um, the Cape and Islands are going to have some ocean effect snow showers tomorrow. I don't think it's going to amount to much, maybe a coating to perhaps an inch here or there. It's, it's confined to the Cape and Islands, though. Ironically, Nantucket may see an inch or two of snow tomorrow. So that would you know, be a white Christmas for those on Nantucket and the islands. But otherwise, there may be a few ambiance snow showers tonight as the cold air blasts. And other than that, no, no white Christmas, but it will go back to feeling like winter. Both tomorrow and Christmas Day will feature highs in the 20s, and it won't be a damaging wind like today, but it will be kind of blustery. So the wind chill tomorrow and on Christmas Day will be in the teens. All right. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, happy holidays. You too. Thanks. And right now it is 52 degrees in Boston. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR, and stay with us at noon today for Here and Now. Scott Tong is here with us to tell us about the show today. Good morning, Scott. 
Good morning, Deb. I enjoyed the segment on those of us uh, or who have friends or ourselves who need a little help uh, in the run-up to Sunday. <laughs> uh, okay. We won't talk about it. On our show at midday when some of us will be doing errands, we're going to be getting the latest on this bomb cyclone and the frigid weather that that's putting so many Americans at risk. We're going to try to get um, experts in the emergency response space and weather and those on the ground trying to serve those without homes. We're going to talk about COVID in China, where the cases are skyrocketing, and there is concern for the world about new mutations, new subvariants, subvariants coming potentially. Uh, this virus has not settled into a predictable pattern, so we'll see how that goes and how that affects people in China and around the world. We'll have a politics roundtable and the best television of 2022, according to Eric Deggins. That's today. All right. Thanks so much. Happy holidays, Scott. Thanks. And to you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Nigerian artist Burna Boy fills arenas around the world. For many of his fans, especially the ones from home, it's a huge moment to see someone like him represented on the big stage. I wanted to feel like they're seeing and hearing their own selves, their own souls. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. The big federal spending bill would bring new retirement benefits. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at PaloAltoNetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. Today, the House is expected to take a final vote on a $1.7 trillion package of government funding. It was approved by the Senate yesterday. There's a midnight deadline. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with a look at some elements of this sweeping plan. Yeah, some headline numbers, David. Republicans wanted more spending on defense. They got it. $858 billion allocated for this fiscal year, which runs through next September. That's about a 10% increase. The rest of the money, about $773 billion, funds the rest of the federal government, everything except Medicare and Social Security. And among the highlights there, $45 billion for aid to Ukraine and nearly $41 billion of assistance for areas in the U.S. hit by natural disasters. And changes in employer retirement plans caught my eye. What are some details that you're seeing? You know, significant changes, actually. And one of the highlights there is automatic enrollment. Most employers will have to automatically enroll workers into retirement plans like 401ks. And to start them off with contributions at 3% of wages, and that would go up to 10% over time. So workers can opt out of participating in 401ks, but the theory is that automatic enrollment will get more people saving. Also, the government will start matching some of the retirement contributions for workers, making less than $71,000. They'll match up to $2,000 worth of contributions. And another significant change affects people with student loan debt. If they're making monthly payments on that debt, employers can now consider those contributions and match those payments, David. All right, Nova, thank you. 
There's news just now. Inflation is slowing using a crucial measure preferred by the guardians of interest rates at the Fed. The PCE gauge went up just a tenth of a percent in November, and it's up five and a half percent in a year. On the news, S&P futures went from down to up three-tenths percent. We're also tracking the airlines today with the wild weather bringing the shock of a radical deep freeze. 2,500 flights were canceled yesterday, 3,300 flights so far today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Consumer rights include the right not to get ripped off, but when companies do things that hurt or favor certain groups of people, that's where consumer rights become civil rights. For instance, California's Attorney General Rob Bonta is in the midst of an investigation into software algorithms used by hospitals that may discriminate by race. One system is less likely to flag kidney stones if a black person shows up with pain in that area versus a white person. Someone who's very focused on consumer rights as a civil right is the CEO of Consumer Reports, Marta Tejado. She has a new book out called Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Marketplace. And she joins us now. Ms. Tejado, welcome. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. There are some who may think that your job is to review robot vacuum cleaners or remind us yet again that Toyotas are good. (laughs) But you see your professional work as a civil rights crusader at some level. Well, that's right. I think a lot of folks do know us because of the ratings, but a lot of what we do is really to shape the marketplace, to create a more fair and safer marketplace. And in the book, Buyer Aware, what I really try to do is tell a larger story about our democracy, that it can only flourish if we have a marketplace that does just that, is more fair, more just for all consumers. All consumers. No one wants to be exploited by companies with which we interact, but Additionally, and I think crucially important reading your book, you see an equity issue. The exploitation is worse for some people and not others. Well, that's right. And I think for me, the seed was planted as a a young immigrant child coming into the United States after a revolution in Cuba and seeing my parents have to rebuild their economic life and having a very firsthand experience and having a tremendous gratitude being able to come to a democracy. But you also see firsthand that Economic freedom is a civil right, that you can't have a fair market if there is inherent bias. And when our economic power and our agency is undermined, so is our power to function as a free and equal member of our democracy. And when you think about civil rights and equity as it applies to consumer rights, I mean, I think some people will talk about redlining of loans or access to broadband Internet, which is so uneven in, for instance, Native American tribal lands. But it goes much deeper. I mean, you worry a lot about emerging technology, artificial intelligence, and the biases that are built in. Well, absolutely. We've been so proud of all the work we've done over 86 years to codify the laws and the rules for fairness and justice in the marketplace. But the unfortunate thing is that a lot of those rules don't apply to this new digital landscape where we don't have transparency and you have to make decisions every day based on algorithms and things that you can't see, feel or touch. And that's incredibly challenging for everyday consumers. And Consumer Reports gets involved in the public policy process. You make your organization heard on a matter like that. 
Well, so many folks come to us because they're making individual choices. And what we look at is how do those choices ladder up to the marketplace more generally? We do have a digital lab that looks precisely at, at bias. And we've also looked at car insurance. And you assume your car insurance is based on your driving record, the fact that you don't have tickets or you haven't had that fender bender. But in fact, the algorithm is also looking at non-driving factors about you, where you live, what your income is, what your education level is. And so what we discovered is that the price that you pay for your car insurance has more to do with your zip code and whether that neighborhood happens to be black, white, or Hispanic. And it determines what you're paying on that premium. And so a black and Hispanic neighborhood is paying a higher premium than a white neighborhood based on that bias. The chief executive officer of Consumer Reports, Marta Teato. Her book is called Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Marketplace. Ms. Teato, thank you so much. Thank you, David. A pleasure. Our digital producer is Redmond Caralipio. Our engineers are Jess and Dooler and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, rainy, very windy today. Strong wind gusts up to 50 miles an hour. Thousands of outages are reported because of the strong winds. Temperatures today, though, getting up around 60 degrees. Tonight, the rain will taper off. Still gusty, strong gusts tonight. Temperatures dropping into the teens tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine, breezy. Temperatures in the 20s. And for Christmas Day on Sunday, it'll be sunny with highs In the upper 20s, it is 52 degrees in Boston. Stay with us at 10 o'clock this morning for On Point, where we'll talk about how music can help people physically heal and possibly manage pain. That's the healing power of music at 10 o'clock on On Point here on WBUR. And we want to thank you for listening to WBUR during the holidays. Whatever your plans, we'll be here with news, reflections, and good company on 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us. BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Gaffar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration. GardnerMuseum.org. Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.